Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com. Lord, we do thank you for your word and... Lord, there's a lot of weird stuff happening in this text um, and the weird stuff that's going on in it is not too different from what we see in the world around us as well as in our own lives. And so I just pray that your spirit would give us clear sight and um, that you would open our hearts and cause us cause us to be transformed into people who depend upon you and who live in communion with you in prayer. And God, I just pray that that you would just use this text to further conform us and our church into a legitimate, substantive place of spiritual power that you are pleased with. And I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Mark 11. I don't know how many of you know this name, um, but there's a fellow by the name of Michael Knowles. He's a political commentator, a political writer, I guess, with a conservative news organization called The Daily Wire. You probably, most people probably heard of that. Now, I have no intention this morning in bringing this guy up or The Daily Wire to promote them or their ideas or The Daily Wire or anything like that, but he did do something that serves my purposes for today that I think is, well, it, it, it's good, so it, it's relevant. In 2017, Michael Knowles published a book that made it to the New York Times bestseller list, and this is the name of the book. It's Reasons to Vote for Democrats, A Comprehensive Guide, right? Thick book, and if you buy this book, it's thick, it's serious looking, if you buy it, you will click quickly learn that the pages are all blank. Every one of them. There's no words on any page. Just page numbers. Now, it's a childish, middle school sort of parochial plank, prank. You know, it's a silly way of saying there's no good reason to vote for a Democrat, which is dumb. It's a waste of money. And it's a horrible strategy to build peace and consensus in a culture that's divided, right? Conservatives laughed. They thought it was funny. Happily buying a blank book. Be like, look, all the reasons. And the cultural divide, even on this silly joke, was deepened and exacerbated further by, by antics like this, right? But this book was thick. It's like 250 pages long, right? It had a well-designed cover. It had a jacket on the back filled with endorsements from high-profile people, profile people, including Donald Trump, who thought it was an engaging read, <laughs> right? right? It's published by a reputable publisher, encouraging people to take it serious. Right? What I'm trying to say here is this book had all the marks. It had all the marks, all the promise, and carried with it the image of a very serious, well-researched, politically deep idea, right? It had the promise of like looking like a sincere, empathetic attempt from a conservative Republican trying to steel man 
his political rivals and take them seriously. Humanize them, considering their ideas seriously and showing how a smart, good, and wise, intelligent citizen of this country would maybe think and feel differently than him. Right? But, as the saying goes, the book ends up being all show and no substance. Just a joke. Right? That's, that's, that's what it is. This brings me to the question I think that looms should loom over us and over this text as we are considering it this morning, is how do we know, how would we know if we are all show and no substance? How would we know if we are a promising book with a fancy cover that's actually just empty? How would we know that? How do we know if we're just a spiritual show with hollow, empty spirituality. If God were to show up in here, pick us up like a book and thumb through the pages, not only could He see what substance there is, if He were kind, He would actually tell us what He would look for to know if there was any substance there or not. Right? He would tell us what He's looking for as evidence of the real thing, or of sincere spiritual substance. And in our passage today, this is exactly what God is doing. God opens up the book of the human heart and He looks for the evidence of spiritual substance and He tells us what He's looking for. And it's very simple. He's looking, he's looking for something very specific. And what He's looking for are people of prayer. And so people of prayer are people of substance. That's, that's what this text shows us. That people of prayer are people of substance. When God opens up the book of your life, what He's looking for is prayer. That's what he's looking for. We'll come and see that in our text in three different points. So, first point is going to be inspection. Second is judgment. And the third is evaluation. So, we're going to break it up into those three categories. So, first, inspection. In verses 1 to 11, Jesus inspects. He does an inspection. Up to this point in verses 1 through 11 in Mark, Jesus has been ministering in and around Israel the rural areas and villages outside of Jerusalem, not in the big city, not, not in the capital city. Over the past several weeks, we've seen Jesus doing amazing work. He's teaching His disciples about His kingdom on their long journey toward Jerusalem, toward the big city, where He will be met with rejection, as we've been told, and death on a cross is the pathway to establishing His kingdom. So that's, that's, where, we've, that's where we've come so far in Mark. But here in verse 1, we see that Jesus is now near Jerusalem. He's now near Jerusalem. Where he's at at this point is about 18 miles outside of Jerusalem. And so he's got to walk to get there. And Jerusalem is significant. This, the reason why he's, he's on this path to Jerusalem is because Jerusalem is the epicenter in Scripture of God's worship in the world. This is, this is the capital of the world's worship of God. This is where God would have His home built, where His temple sits, the center of His presence, His worship, His law, His power, and where His glory sits in the world. This is Jerusalem is the place. It's God's home in the world. And Jesus, being God Himself, is 18 miles out going home, going to His space, going to His temple. 
And he's accompanied, it says here, by his disciples and a crowd of people who've been following him, the people that witnessed his healings, people that heard him teach, the people that are amazed by his teaching. So this is, this is what's happening in this text. And as he comes close, what we learn, what we, what we gather from this is that the crowd of people, and as, the, as they're making their march toward Jerusalem, that they're not the only ones marching toward Jerusalem at this time. This is, this is happening all around the country. This is the time of Passover. It's significant because this time of year brought out every Jewish person from every city in Israel to Jerusalem for the national celebration of God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt in the celebration of Passover. The poor, the young, the old, the whole country took a week off of work, made pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate and worship God in the temple. And it was custom to walk to Jerusalem. This is, this is what they did. They would literally not take their horses and whatnot. They would intentionally take up their feet, their shoes, and walk to Jerusalem, remembering that Israel walked out of Egypt, walked across the Red Sea, and then walked through the desert for 40 years. So the whole nation is walking, walking to God's spot, the place of worship. And so there's little crowds of people all making the same journey. And yet, as they get outside of Jerusalem in verse 3, they're just across the valley from Jerusalem. They're up on the Mount of Olives, out by Bethany, which is just across, just across the valley. Jerusalem's within eyesight. Jesus tells the disciples to get him a colt, a little baby horse, a young horse, to ride into Jerusalem, breaking with this cultural tradition. He's breaking with the cultural tradition of walking in fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, doing the thing that kings do when they're making royal entrance upon the region in which they are establishing their rule. And we see this in Zechariah 9.9 that we read in our Old Testament text this morning. Rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is Jesus is here fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, and you see there that as he is to be coming, the people of God are called to rejoice. Daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem, you are to be rejoicing. And as Jesus mounts this colt, the people are shouting and praising God in verses 7 through 10. You see the people shouting and praising God. Palm branches is what we do Palm Sunday, right? They're laying down their cloaks, They're do, showing deference to him, humility before him as Jesus puts on this powerful, majestic display of sovereign rule in front of them, going into Jerusalem on a donkey. And Jerusalem, where are they at in this passage? They're silent. Notice that. Jerusalem is silent and even absent. No one comes out to join the party. No one makes a peep. Jerusalem's absent. You need to see this. Jerusalem is literally within sight. They can see it. They can hear it. And people are partying on their way into the city, parading the Messiah into His reign and the establishment of His kingdom. And Jerusalem doesn't care. No one cares. No one sees. No one rejoices. Only the people outside of the city. 
He enters the city in verse 11 in the deafening silence. Unnoticed, ignored. And he goes to the temple. And rather than being mobbed by people, oh, our new king is here, let's rejoice and celebrate. Rather than that, he goes to his temple and evidently has enough time to do an inspection on the temple. Look there in verse 11. He entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything. Right? He looked around at everything. Jesus go, shows up to the temple. It's late. It's probably getting dark out. Right? It's quiet. And what is he doing? He looks. He picks up a serious-looking book, all the show of seriousness and spirituality and intense worship of God. He picks up the book and he says, let's see what kind of substance is in here. He looks for signs of life. Looks for substance. And notice how verse 11 ends. What does God do when He gets home? He went out to Bethany with the twelve. That should hit us with like a, like a baseball bat in the head in the head. God left the temple. He went out of the city, out of the temple, to his disciples. The fact that Jesus quietly walks out of his house, out of his city, to be with his disciples who can't seem to get it together for all of Mark, whatever it is that Jesus sees, whatever he finds, is not good. He's not happy. You finish this verse, verse 11, with, with, a, with a pit in your stomach. Like, whoa, what is, going, what is going on? This is not the behavior of a man excited about what he finds. This is the behavior of a man who walks into his home after being gone for some time, looks around, and goes out to sleep in a hotel. That's, that's what's happening here. He comes home after a long trip, and rather than going into his warm bed, he goes to a hotel leaving the family behind. Makes you sick to your stomach. Whatever Jesus sees repels him. Whatever he saw as evidence, whatever he saw was evidence that his home was unrecognizable. Not a place he would stomach spending the night in. Sad. It's a sad moment in this text. So Jesus makes, makes an inspection in verses 1-11. to and then in verses 12 through 16, Jesus now moves to judgment. Jesus is now going to judge what it is that he witnessed and what he saw. Now, when I, in, well, this is verses 12 to 16, if you're keeping notes, uh, verses 12 to 16. When I worked uh, as a nurse on the patient floor in the hospital, one thing that would frequently happen, and Katie, I'm sure you can relate with this. One thing that would frequently happen is, is I would be doing my job, you'd go into a patient room, and as I'd walk into the room, I would walk into a family having an argument, yelling at each other, cursing at each other. Like, it, like you walk in, and it's like, oh my gosh, uh, awkward. <laughs> like, like, but they don't, there's some families that don't like immediately like quiet down and, and like, oh, we're embarrassed. They don't, some families don't feel that way. They just, they just keep going. And you're standing in there like doing vital signs or whatever it is you're doing as a nurse and they're just going. 
and you're like, oh, this is so uncomfortable, right? That's that's this text. That's this text. <laughs> that is that's that's this text. That's how this passage feels. These verses usher us into what feels like a cringy argument. Anger, judgment, cursing, and destroying property, breaking things. We're ushered into a scene of violent judgment, and we don't really get much of an explanation in these verses, in these four verses. It's like we walk in mid-conversation, and we have to kind of be here because, well, we have to deal with this text, and we can't really escape it right now, right? Like we're, we're in the middle of an argument. So as cringy and weird as it is, we need, we kind of peer past that and look in and see what's going on. And we see two different scenes in these four verses. Two different scenes. In verses 12 to 14, Jesus is judging a tree. And then in verses 15 and 16, Jesus judges the temple. So he judges a tree and he judges the temple. So let's lean in and get comfy with these scenes um, and try to understand what's going on. In verses 12 to 14 then, Jesus headed out of Bethany in verse 11 into Jerusalem, spent the night, next day wakes up, and is walking back to Jerusalem, right? And he's on his walk. He's hungry. He didn't get breakfast, right? He wants a snack. And he sees a tree in front of him. He sees a tree. There's a tree, normal tree, right in front of him. And in verse 13, notice the language that he uses. That it was in leaf. It says there in verse 13, and seeing... The, in the distance, a fig tree in leaf, which is a weird way to say it, but basically it's just the tree is full of leaves. It looks like it's blooming, right? It looks, it's, it looks, it's got some promise, right? It's advertising itself as if, as, as if it's, it's going to provide him some fruit. It looks like it looks promising I can find something here to eat and satisfy my hunger. Like a book with a serious-looking jacket. Jesus goes up to the tree, hoping to find a snack, and as he looks at the tree, despite all of its promise, it's empty. There's nothing on it. There's, there's, there's nothing on it. No figs. A book with empty pages is what he finds. A book with empty pages. Now that last phrase in verse 13 has, uh, has captured the attention of academics, and you can read on this for, for days if you wanted. It says in verse 13, at the end of verse 13, for it was not the season for figs. And a lot of people try to figure out what's going on with that. Here's my simple take and my simple explanation of it. You might have good reason to assume, you, you might have good reason to assume that there's no fruit on the tree because of the season, right? But the show is spectacular. The show is captivating. The expression is, is compelling. Selling the possibility that there's really fruit there. Getting your hopes up. Really like pulling you in. Only to disappoint you and leave you wanting. Only to leave you hungry. Right? The empty display. It's fraudulent, uh, fraudulent salesmanship is what Jesus sees when he sees this tree leaving him hungry, and Jesus is not pleased. And so he judges it. He says, may no one ever eat from you again. Very intense. Jesus gets angry at a tree and judges it because of false advertising, right? It looked serious, but it was nothing there. Well, in verses 15 to 16, 
we find another angry scene where Jesus brings judgment. Jesus gets to Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple, and he goes off. He drives out the sellers, the buyers, crashing tables, turning over chairs, causing a traffic jam of people trying to move and different, do different things, preventing people from carrying anything to the temple. He causes a massive, loud, angry scene. Disrupts everything. As people are traveling... Uh, well, Mark provides us some... <laughs> Mark provides us some horticultural background on the fig tree. It's not in season. He doesn't give us any explanation as to what any of this means in, in verses 15 and 16. He assumes we know what's happening, and I'm sure people in the first century were very well aware of what was going on, and so he offers no explanation. So we need to do a bit of work to see what's happening. And so what's going on is that as people are coming in to celebrate the Passover, as people are coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they get to the temple. When they get to the temple, they would bring in an animal for sacrifice. This was their common practice. They bring an animal up to the temple for sacrifice and worship God there. But there's a problem. There's a big problem. Logistically, if you have a large family, which most did, making a pilgrimage with your whole family to Jerusalem is enough. Right? I appreciated being able to use Josh as an example this morning, trying to read the Scripture and at the same time Keep track of Benny up here, right? Now, put some sheep, some pigeons and doves, some other animals, some, some cattle in tow too. That's, that's crazy. If you're walking an eight, you know, 20, 25, 30 miles from some outside city with all of your family and then livestock in tow, that's a lot. That, that's, that's a lot, right? And so people, people didn't want to have to do that. Right? So it was common, what was very common throughout the temple period in Israel, that they would set up markets outside of Jerusalem, on the outside of the city, up around the Mount of Olives and Bethany, outside of the city. And at these markets, people could, come, could leave their livestock at home, bring some cash with them, and buy some doves, buy some sheep, or other animals that would be used as sacrifice in temple worship. You pay a bit of a premium, like going to a Cubs game and buying a hot dog there, you're going to pay more. But it's worth it because you saved yourself so much trouble and the extra cost of transporting livestock along with your family. So people, people were, were cool with it. It's just what you did. It was part of the experience. It was convenient for them. And it was lucrative, very lucrative for markets and sellers. It was, it was big business in that day. Right? It was big business. Well, what we don't know, the history of this, is that a couple years prior to this, just before AD 30, Caiaphas, the high priest in Jerusalem, over the, over the other priests, he saw this and he said, you know what? Why, why are those folks out there on the Mount of Olives? Why are they getting all the benefit? I want in on that action too. The priesthood, the priesthood should have should enter into the market and compete, right? And so what ended up happening was that he entered into sort of capitalist competition in the sale of animals that would be sacrificed and even in, in the exchange of money. So like a savvy entrepreneur attempting to make some cash, 
He sets up shop in what we know as the court of the Gentiles. So in in the temple, there's a court of the Gentiles where non-Jewish people could come and worship God, where outsiders and Gentile people were welcome to bring their sacrifices, were welcome to come in and pray. He set up the shops in that space and sold livestock. He sold doves and pigeons. Um, He sold cattle. Doves and pigeons were the cheapest, right? Therefore, the poorest of people, but there were bulls and sheep and whatever other animals that would be used in sacrifice, all filling up this space in the temple. There's also a money changer, which is basically just a currency converter. Um, Because of the Roman occupation, most people use Roman currency uh, that people had, and that's typically what they carried on them. But if you were to buy an animal for sacrifice, when uh, when you would, or you would give your tithe for your annual um, for your annual temple tax, the temple required you to pay it in Jewish coinage, Jewish. In, in the uh, Israelite currency of that day. It's called Tyrian coinage, if anybody cares. The kind that was accepted by the temple. The temple money changers were happy to exchange your money for a slight up charge with whatever was legal at the time. And so you have now the temple taking up space of worship to profit. This is what's happening. So here's what Jesus saw. He walks into the temple, sees a commercial business, livestock, deliveries of livestock, and the priests running a side business trying to outcompete and make some cash and some capitalist venture in the space for worship. Rather than the nations and the Gentiles coming in to worship and pray, the priests are looking for a payday in the space for prayer and worship. Looks more like the barns of the state fair with the clinking coins and the sounds of a busy bank. This is, this is what the temple has become. And well, Jesus ain't happy with that. (laughs) Jesus is not happy with that. He brings judgment. He starts flipping out tables. He stops the transport of animals to the temple. He drives out the sellers. He clears the house. He's causing a scene of epic proportions, totally disrupting everything, and he's making a mess of it all. He comes in and he brings judgment. Now, In verses 17 to 25, we get the evaluation of this. So we don't get a lot of explanation here. We've got a lot of inference. But in 17 to 25, we see Jesus evaluating what is happening in these scenes. We learn that the episode at the fig tree and the episode at the temple are not two different episodes. They're the same. They're one episode. They're, They're... they're, uh, the, the fig tree is just a picture, uh, an analogy. He was, he was analogizing what he was experiencing and seeing in the temple. Mark, the way he constructs this passage, actually forces us to see him as one event by sandwiching them together in this way, mutually explaining each other. And verse 17, verse 17, I believe, is the center of this passage. It's, it's the very heart of this passage. If you read verse 17, It is the core of these scenes, the gravity that holds it all together. He says there in verse 17, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Not just Jerusalem, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. My house is a house of prayer. When Jesus picked up the book of Jerusalem, He expected to open it up 
and see this one primary sign of substance, the sign of legitimate life, a prayerful people. That's what he expected to find. That's what he hoped to find. And instead, as he walked around looking at everything, he found 256 pages of nothing. He found a blank book. He found a tree full of leaves with promising fruit that had none. And he found a temple full of robbers profiting off of the poor in exchange for the worship of God. He saw it was all show. And he saw it was no substance. The fruit that Jesus was looking for that day was not figs. He was looking for a people of prayer and instead found money changers, found cattle sales, and a court of prayer being supplanted as a den of robbers. Exploiting the poor, exploiting the Gentiles, robbing them of a space to pray and worship. The nations in this moment are being pressed out of the temple. right? They're being pressed out of God's presence. And rather than prayer being prioritized, it was prophets. And Jesus saw this, and rightfully, he became angry and judged and brought judgment on it. He exposed the priests as empty, blank-paged books. And in verse 18, they wanted him dead for exposing it. Look there in verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. They wanted to destroy him for it. They sat there paralyzed, like me, stuck in an argument, trying to just trying to do my job, like, oh no. <laughs> right? And they wanted him gone. Jesus' home was transformed into the home of sin and corruption, lacking all signs of spiritual life. That is why he left in verse 11, and that's why he leaves again in verse 19. Verse 19, and when evening came, they went out of the city. He leaves the temple again. There is no spiritual life. There's no substance. We're better off in Bethany. In verses 20 and 21, the disciples are wanting help with what Jesus was up to because they saw this. And, you know, we have, we have hindsight. We can read all kinds of texts, what happens after this. and We can make sense of this. The disciples had no clue what was going on. They were as confused as we would be with the whole fig incident. When they saw and did not know how to process it, Jesus then expands upon what he said in the temple after driving out the salespeople. He shows them that when God shows up, when he opens the book and looks for substance, that he is looking for dependent faith that communes with God and engages him in expectant and sincere prayer. And that's, what you, that's why Jesus says what he does here. He's, he's giving us these descriptions of prayer and how to pray as a way of saying, this is what I expected to find. This is what... This is the fruit I was looking for, and it wasn't there. This is what I was looking for. This is why I cursed the fig tree. This is why I drove them out of the temple, because I didn't see these things. I didn't see sincere, expectant, dependent, persistent prayer. Jesus, to use another nursing illustration, took, takes the vital signs of Jerusalem, he took the vital signs of the temple. He listened for prayer, the heartbeat of relationship with God. He listened for faith, the blood pressure of the worship of God. He listened for forgiveness and love, the respiratory rate of worship, and he found they were all gone. They're flatlined, right? They're flatlined. Coded. Cardiac arrest. It's fake. Substanceless religiosity. 
All show, no substance. A tree full of leaves and promise, but no fruit. And my question today, my question is, if Jesus were to walk into this room right now and take our church's vital signs or to pick up the book of Emmaus and thumb through us, what would he find? What would he find? What would he find in you personally? This passage has tore me up, guys, this week. So I've been so convicted all week. I had to repent to my wife last night about it. Um, anyway, it's just this is this has just been very heavy in my heart all week. But we need to hear this that Jesus. We need to hear this and why this is so such a big deal that would drive Jesus to this in the in the first place. Why why prayer is such a big issue for him? We need to understand that Jesus opened himself up like a book for us to see and to look through, to look around at everything as he did the temple. And what do we find? What do we find when we open up Jesus? We find a man of faith. We find a man of prayer. We find a Messiah and King who forgives, as he talks about here. Jesus here is pictured. He's pictured for us here as the truer and better temple. He's the temple. He's what the temple was supposed to be. The man of prayerful substance, of dependence upon God. The temple he left each day was defiled and had no power to clean or transform any of the people in there, which is why he drives them out. There's no reason for them. It can't, it's not doing any good for them. But him as the true temple, he acts to not merely judge the corruption, but to transform people into true substantive worshipers. And in this way, Jesus is the true, the real, the literal, the final and full temple that actually can transform his people into worshipers, unlike the old one. He spills his blood on the cross. He washes us clean, purifying us, granting us access to God in prayer so that we can have confidence he hears us, communes with us, and would answer our prayers. And we can have the confidence in verse 24. Look at verse, verse 24 with me. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. He turns us into temples, places of substantive prayer and dependence that can rely upon God, depend upon Him, and find Him responding to us favorably. Jesus' whole gospel work was to make that possible. This is, this is what He came to accomplish. This was His mission. He bled, He died, and He rose from the grave so that we would be brought into faithful, enjoyable, delightful communion with God so that we could pray to Him and go to Him and, and commune with Him so we could engage God personally. This, this is the whole mission. It's, what, it's everything He came to do. So when He goes into a temple and He doesn't see that, obviously it's going to be a problem. Hebrews 7.25 Shows us that not only was this Jesus's, not only was this Jesus's aim and purpose in his first coming, in his ministry in Jerusalem, it's his purpose today. In Hebrews seven twenty five, it says that he is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us right now. This this is Jesus's ministry to us is prayer. It's what the Holy Spirit's role is in eight Romans eight twenty six. The Holy Spirit prays for us. Prayer is central to who Jesus is, to the, to the purpose for which the temple existed, and for us. It's, it's at the very heart of Jesus' ministry, at the very heart of his ministry today. So it makes sense. It makes sense. 
that where this is absent, there's judgment. It's a problem. But He saved us to be a people of prayer. And he saved, you a, he saved you to make you a praying person of spiritual substance, not just show. This is, this, is, this is what God has brought. This is the gift he's given you. You can access God in prayer. Now, I read this passage years ago um, uh, from a book by D.A. Carson uh, called Praying with Paul. It was a popular book. It's, it's, it's so awesome. This is a lengthy quote. I'm going to read it because it wrecked me, and I hope it wrecks you the way it wrecked me. Okay? So listen to this. Few of us are so crass that we would self-consciously reason, I'm too important to pray, I'm too self-confident to pray, I'm too independent to pray. Instead, what happens is this. Although abstractly I may affirm the importance of prayer, in reality I may treat prayer only as important in the lives of other people, especially those I judge to be weaker in character, more needy, less competent, less productive. Thus, while affirming the importance of prayer, I may not feel deep need for prayer in my own life. I may be getting along so well without much praying that my self-confidence is constantly being reinforced. That breeds yet another round of prayerlessness. And what is God's response? If Christians who shelter beneath such self-assurance do not learn better ways by listening to the Scriptures, God may address them in the terrible language of tragedy. We serve a God who delights to disclose Himself to, a, to the contrite, to the lowly of heart, to the meek. When God finds us so puffed up that we do not feel our need for Him, it's actually an act of kindness on His part to take us down a peg or two. It would be an act of judgment to leave us in our vaulting self-esteem. When Jesus walks out of the temple in Jerusalem, they're being judged. He leaves them in their self-assurance and in their idolatry and dependence upon money and show. And God is calling us to be a people of prayer. So what would God find if He opened you up? Would He find fruit? If not, He's calling you to repent today. In the last couple minutes I have, I'm going to make three very fast applications of this because I think it's good to be specific on how we can apply this. The first, first application I want to share with you, <laughs> this is dangerous to say, but I'm going to say it anyway because I think we need to hear it. Jesus cares about our hearts, but not only our hearts. He cares about your heart. I think it's his priority. That's not his only priority. He saw the furniture, the decorations, and the embodied fleshy aspects of temple worship as important, valuable, right? He didn't say, well, it's what's in their hearts that matter, you know? There may be cattle there, but you know, it's just, it's just what's in their hearts. But he also cares about the physical, earthly things too because they're good, they're made for, to worship him with, and they're made to usher us into communion with him. And this is, this is why, for me, I take setup of church extremely seriously. 
This is why I think church setup team is as valuable as any other setup, as any other ministry in the church. Especially when you're in a church plant and you're having to transform a public school into a place of worship. The physical, the, the placement of the chairs, the decor, the way things are set up on a table, all of it matters. Every bit of it matters to God. Jesus cared. Jesus cared about what was the physical placement and the, he, there were tables with money on it that he didn't like and he literally pushed them away, tore them to pieces. This is why our setup team here at Emmaus today and in the future is not just a team for manual labor. It's a ministry that facilitates the diverse worship of God and communion with Him in this church. The setup and decor of our church matters. It's not optional. It's not, it's not inconsequential. Every bit of it matters in every possible way. It's not just about our hearts. Jesus makes this clear. Their hearts matter to him here. They do. But it's not just their hearts. The space for worship is to promote, facilitate, and invite the diverse nations for the public enjoyment of God as priority, not just number one, but as priority, period. And so encourage, thank, and pray for our setup team here, not just for today, but into the future. It's an essential ministry. Okay, that was longer than I intended it to be, but I wanted to focus on it. Uh, if, uh, second, if God were to pick up your own heart and seek for substance in private and in your home, what would he find? Of our uh, six spiritual practices, one of them is solitude, which means that we are to be committed to private prayer and prayer in our homes with our families. So as you look at your personal prayer life and your home prayer life, what changes might you make? Are there any money changers, animals, or things competing with your prayer life that you need to this week, repent of. And turn your bodily temple, your, the, the, the place of worship in your home, a place of prayer, a home of prayer. And then last, um, we have prayers that we incorporate each week into our worship service. You all know this. As we want to be a, and build Emmaus as a house of prayer, as Jesus calls us to here, um, the, I just encourage you to take, take them seriously. Take them very seriously. I send them out to you, to everybody on Church Center ahead of time for a reason. So that you have opportunity to take them seriously so when you come in here you're not reading them and thinking about them for the first time. That's why they're sent out to you weekly. Participate and engage the pastoral prayer that I pray it's easy to be distracted, it is long, and we're not used to long prayers, but the reason we do it, the reason we do this is because this is what God's looking for when he <laughs> this is this is the stuff he's looking for when he thumbs through the book of Emmaus church. So take time to not only prepare for worship and praying when you come, but then also as we say in our volunteer huddles each week to take initiative to pray with one another forsaking the promise to pray for people in the future to instead pray for them right then. We want to be a people of prayer, practicing solitude and engaging in prayer. But the good news for us is that Jesus is in heaven right now praying for us that we would engage Him and know Him and be served by Him. So let's commit ourselves to join Him and commune with Him 
and the Holy Spirit that we might all together enjoy the whole of our triune God in dependent and confident prayer. This is, after all, what God is looking for when He looks upon us. So let's pray now. God, we thank You for texts like this where You help to clarify for us what it is that You're looking from us. Prayer as an act of faith and confidence and dependence upon You. Lord, is resisted by our flesh and we tend to think that everything else is more important. So God, I pray that um, by the power of Your Spirit, through the blood of Jesus, that You would... Um, that You would accomplish in us through the work of Christ the transformation we need uh, to be the, a people of prayer as You have called us to be. Uh, we pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.